The buffalo provided the fuel for fires that smoked their own meat. Lewis Erdage. Welcome to Warfare Advancement and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I am your host. So I'd like to thank everyone for continuing to listen. Um, I do want to apologize, first off, for the late upload this past week. Um, I was thrown off by the Labor Day weekend here in the U.S., and that as I was looking at my calendar, you know, of when I would be uploading, I, I picked the wrong day. It was just a simple mistake, so do apologize for those expecting their standard Monday episode uh, and hoping to listen to it maybe on your day off. Uh, sorry for that, but uh, this episode should appear at the normal time uh, very early Monday morning, so uh, unless I lose my mind before then, so... <laughs> Anyway, uh, now though, let's go ahead and get into the meat of this episode, um, uh, which is in the Americas at 10,000 BC, and that includes both North and South America. Now, uh, at this time, both of those continents, like Oceania, are less populated than Europe, Asia, and Africa. This is due to the difficulty of travel between the Americas and Eurasian at this time. Uh, Bering Land Bridge, or Beringia, was the access point to the Americas in this period. And during times of glaciation, the Bering Sea, uh, which is of course between modern day Alaska and Russia, would fill with ice and, ice and sea levels would drop, leading to pathways between the two. <clears throat> Now, though, before we discuss that, um, or I'm sorry, uh, now before we discuss the peoples making the journey, we need to dive into the kind of the controversy on the timing of this event or events as the case probably may be. Uh, now, we have discussed in some of our earlier episodes that the Earth had gone through several phases of warming and cooling during human and Homo sapien development specifically. <clears throat> uh, from our analysis of the land masses, sea levels, ice cores, and a bunch of other resources, uh, we can come up with a few different time frames where Beringia could have been easily crossed by man. Uh, there would have been kind of a sound or something similar to a very large fjord with kind of islands between the, the two land masses between uh, 137,000 to 70,000 years ago, which would have become a connected area, like physically connected without that kind of water source in the middle, uh, would, would have happened somewhere between 70 to 60,000 years ago. And this area would shrink and grow to various levels of navigability and livability between 60 to 30,000 years ago. Beringia would then remain at a more stable size at that 30,000 year mark before you know the land bridge disappears at around somewhere between 11 to 10,000 years ago. Now, just because the land bridge or Beringia is there at a given time doesn't mean you could make it all the way from Asia into the Americas. There were was usually glaciers and ice covering much of Canada and even the north center of the United States, 
with only very brief periods where you could have passed through either overland or even along the coast. <clears throat> so just keep that in mind. Beringia is kind of its own landmass. Again, it's partly Alaska, it's partly Russia. If you're living there, just if you're there, doesn't mean you're going to get through to the Americas. So um, let's kind of go over what Homo sapiens have been found to have been doing at that initial phase of the kind of the small inland sea or sound that existed in Bergia up to around 70,000 years ago. So at 130,000 years, we have our standard Mesolithic toolkit pretty much developed, and we have begun to show a lot more artistic expression, uh, things like making beads in Africa. Uh, but we don't have any evidence of humans living outside of Africa successfully until uh, 120,000 years after uh, so 10,000 years after that. Uh, think, uh, And even then, if it's only in the nearby Levant, um, things like the Kafsa Cave in Israel is just an example. Now, by 70,000 years, we have continued to expand you know, our artistic expression. And for at least 1,000 years, we have been using micro bladelets for throwing spears or possibly arrows. And we have also successfully expanded out of Africa by this point. Uh, we made it to India. And we're about to begin to populate Sahul in Southeast Asia. Uh, Oceania, specifically. <clears throat> in fact, by the end of that first phase of the land bridge, actually becoming up at 60,000 years before present, we have been living successfully in... Uh, Sahul in, in Australia, in that region, for around 5,000 years. We'd probably gotten everywhere we were going to get at that point before we developed better sea-faring technologies. <clears throat> now, as for Eurasia, there were some small levels of Homo sapiens moving into the northern climes of Europe and the steppes. Uh, there had been evidence of interbreeding in those regions at an earlier time, but Homo sapiens don't expand into that region permanently until 60,000 years before present, which is right when the land bridge begins to kind of become more stable in size, I guess, uh, or more easily navigable once that inland sound kind of goes away. <laughs> Now, I won't be going into earlier theories just yet, but um, I do plan on doing an episode about the entire historiography of the Americas in the future. Basically, I'll go over like early, like what early Europeans in the region thought uh, was how humans got there, because there were some wild theories uh, at the time. But those are just, they're, they're definitely ahistorical from everything we know now. There's no real you know, bearing that you could really give them. But I, I do want to go back and talk about that in the future as kind of a revisionist episode. For now, though, I'm going to focus on what we know or what the modern discussions of this topic entail. So for pretty much the last half of the 20th century, the most popular idea of how the Americas had been populated was that around 13,500 years ago, which is around 11,000 BC, so, um, so about 2,000 years before the land bridge disappears, basically, 
uh, people crossed into the Americas from Eurasia, from Beringia. Uh, the theory would gain a lot of steam and eventually be popularly accepted due to a set of discoveries kicked off by a man named George McJunkin in 1908. Uh, McJunkin is a very interesting guy. Um, he had been born a slave in Texas. Um, and the stories kind of differ on how he was freed. Um, some say that, you know, he was freed as a result of the, the South losing the Civil War to the North. Uh, there are others that say his father was a very skilled blacksmith and that he had been able to earn enough money to buy uh, George's freedom and there there's some conflicting sources also maybe his mother and himself as well so maybe their whole family um but regardless by the time he was around nine years old the civil war was over and one way or the other he had been freed um but he didn't seem to want to follow in his father's footsteps as black myth he apparently prefer uh preferred being in the outdoors uh he became a cowboy and he would uh you know do a lot of uh, jobs typical of that uh, type of lifestyle. He would move, uh, help move freight. Uh, he would hunt buffalo, I think, in the Colorado area. And he would end up serving as a bunch of ranch hands all over uh, Texas, Colorado, and New Mexico. And he was, he was good at his job. Um, he eventually became a foreman for a ranch in New Mexico. Uh, but even during his life as a cowboy, he had learned to, you know, he had learned to read from other cowboys and taught himself a bunch of other skills that, you know, just interested him, including a little bit of amateur archaeology. And at some point after some major flooding in 1908, um, McJunkin was investigating the ranch that he was foreman of for damages to the fencing and I guess other damages around that town because it was very severe flooding. Um, but after his patchwork, McJunkin noticed the unusually strong flooding had eroded the ground away from a nearby uh, arroyo. And this is a river or stream bed that only fills after rain, like seasonal rain in the American Southwest and parts of Mexico as well. Um, it can also be called sometimes a wash. You'll see it referred to in certain sources. Uh, they're very similar to Wadi in Arabia. Uh, but anyway, that, uh, that eroding had exposed ground uh, that McJunkin found several bison bones in. Now, what makes that important is that these were not the bones of bison living today or those living in 1908. Uh, they were the bones of the massive, uh, it's the bison antiquus. Uh, those were the relatives of the modern bison, but they are much larger. Um, they could get to over 7 feet tall and 15 feet long, which uh, for those that use the metric system, or a few European listeners or African listeners, we, they would be between 2.2 meters and 4.4 meters uh, long and then tall. And they would weigh around uh, 3,500 pounds, which is about 1,500 kilograms. Now, this was not a new discovery. Uh, these had been found since the 1850s. But what was different about this find was that there were stone weapon points in a creature uh, that had died out in the last ice age. So thousands of years earlier than humans 
were commonly accepted to have lived in the Americas. Uh, now, he may have been an amateur, but McJunkin knew that this was an important site. He left almost everything undisturbed, with the exception of a few stone points uh, that he took as kind of proof of find, and he proceeded to contact several archaeologists to try and interest them in the site. And for a number of reasons, including, I'm sure, racism, uh, definitely lack of funds, World War I, and uh, institutional orthodoxy, he wasn't able to get anyone to visit the site until 1918, when the Natural History Museum, I think in Denver, uh, sent a gentleman by the name of Harold Cook to the site after receiving a sample of the finds that McJunkin had sent. Uh, Cook and McJunkin did, did, then did some exploratory digging on the site. Cook saw what McJunkin had, and he knew that the site contained evidence of much earlier Homo sapien occupation of the Americas than what was typically believed in scientific circles at the time. And he felt the site deserved a lot more study, but that is going to be a problem. Um, I mentioned uh, institutional orthodoxy. Uh, at the time, American archaeology was very dogmatic and you know, very powerful figures in the field attacked any evidence of earlier habitation or even theorizing. Uh, and they would claim, you know, that people that brought forward any evidence, you know, it was forgery or just mistaken dating, you know, just incompetence when it came to actually dating a find. Uh, so to challenge that was to risk your reputation and career. So it would take until about 1926 before um, enough political and monetary capital could be raised to investigate the site properly. Uh, unfortunately, McJunkin died about four years before, uh, and he was around 66 years old, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less. His date of birth is a little murky. Um, but he was, uh, he was buried in the town of Folsom, not far from the site he, he discovered. Uh, from what I can tell, he was a bit of a local hero, and the people maintaining the site, you know, they, they always gave him credit for his work. Um, but he didn't really receive much in the way of wider recognition, like outside of the archaeological field and like the initial newspaper coverage of the, the site. Uh, but in 19, uh, or I'm sorry, in 2019, he was inducted to both the Hall of Great Westerners and the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum, which, you know, uh, that's something. And, uh, of course, now he's been recognized by this humble podcast. So hope he gets a little bit more exposure in the future. Uh, now, the site he found itself is called Folsom, and it was named for the nearby town. And it has been dated to somewhere between uh, 9,000 and 8,000 BCE. Uh, this Folsom cultural tool complex um, is known for they have a very distinct stonework, especially it comes to their uh, weapon points. Um, they have a fairly thick spear or arrowheads, um, with ev with the edges being sharpened on both on both sides and that's not the exterior but actually the the top or the bottom as you might want to call it and at the um at the end uh they have kind of a curved or fluted divot at the bottom to kind of aid in the fastening to the point of a shaft or a handle because they would also do the same things with their knives uh 
Now, the Folsom name was eventually applied to a much larger tool industry in North America, and that industry is dated from around generally uh, between 8,500 and 4,000 BCE. And I will get back to these people later in a future episode because, um, again, this is only till 10,000 BC, so those people haven't emerged yet. Um, but this site set off a whirlwind of interest and allowed kind of the orthodoxy of the peopling of the Americas to be challenged openly and much more fiercely. <clears throat> uh, and in 1929, in New Mexico, the neighboring state, a 19-year-old boy by the name of Ridgely Whitman, uh, who was very interested in the topic and had been following the new information coming out of the Folsom site at the time, uh, he was inspired by the news to kind of, you know, go out and lit, check similar areas to where the Folsom site had been discovered. And he made his own discovery. And uh, he found some ancient remains and passed along what he had found as McJunkin had. And due to the Folsom site success, uh, I'm sorry, due to the Folsom site successfully challenging the status quo, there was a run to find these types of sites. Uh, so thanks to Whitman's and others' finds, um, between, I think, 32 to 37, New Mexico was found to be home to a culture dated to just before and up to the Folsom site. Um, most of these were near the town of Clovis, New Mexico, so the culture was called the Clovis culture. And due to several dating techniques and the like, it was eventually determined that, the, that they preceded the Folsom culture. In fact, the Clovis site predates everything found in the Americas uh, up to that point, and they were able to be dated somewhere precisely to... I'm sorry, they were found to be they were able to be dated somewhat precisely uh, to a very specific window of time. So it's like from, I think, 13,500 to 11,000 years ago. Or about 11,500 B.C. to 9,000 B.C. And because of all these finds um, and, you know, research... Um, around the 1960s, a new theory was kind of put forward as a result of all these excavations and sites and results and new geographic research as well on the, uh, the Beringia area. And this theory said that around 15,000 years ago, when the land bridge still existed and during a period of warming, the last glacial maximum caused a cap to open in between two ice sheets in North America and that allowed the Paleo Indians and their Clovis tools to enter into a virgin land and populate the hemisphere driving the megafauna of the region to extinction. And this was extremely popular. The dates lined up perfectly to the you know almost well virtually every single piece of archaeological evidence. So this became known as the Clovis first theory. And this became the new orthodoxy up until the 1990s when holes began to appear. Um, I know that this was popular when I was younger. Um, I think my older listeners, you know, people mid-30s to older, uh, this is probably what we were all taught in school. Um, but uh, 
you know, now that's definitely become under a lot of fire, and uh, we're going to go into why. Uh, so, the first set of criticisms we need to talk about are the linguistic criticisms. Uh, now, excuse me. Apologies for that. Uh, so, the linguistic criticisms. This is a fairly straightforward one. According to most linguists, the amount of languages that, you know, occupying the Americas uh, is too large and they're too diverse for them to have developed in the time frame allowed by the Clovis First Theory. Uh, secondly, since the 60s, uh, like after this kind of theory came out, uh, there have been several sites that can be dated to before the Clovis, and not just in North America. This includes Central and South America as well. Sites such as uh, Topper in South Carolina, Monteverde in Chile, Pedro Ferrada in Brazil, and Taima Taima in Venezuela, just to name a few. There are many more. Now, it should be noted that many of these sites were used multiple times over thousands of years, and some of the more sh extreme dates that you know, dating at the sites provide uh, should be looked at very carefully, but even if those sites provided a few outliers, they still have a number of very reasonable and very believable dates that they can show valid dates for, or dating, you know, they, they use valid methods and they get very, you know, very reasonable dates based on the evidence they found. And it's a little ironic that some of the criticisms leveled against these sites are very similar to those leveled against the Folsom and Clovis sites by the prior generation of orthodoxy. Uh, but regardless. And then finally, of course, we have genetic evidence. Um, as we have gone over before, DNA began to become more and more common in the 80s. And while there is still a lot of work being done when it comes to Native American ancestry, uh, what we have collected up to this point shows us a picture that looks like this. And again, this is guesswork based on a lot of, you know, some sources, some samples. Uh, they will, of course, continue to collect samples, so this may change. Just keep that in mind. But around somewhere between 40 to 30,000 years ago, the founding population of Native Americans split from uh, an East, East Asian source. And there are some small levels of interbreeding between these two groups after that. But it is very small until around 20,000 years ago. The, pop, the population, uh, the, the founder population, then becomes isolated for a period between 15,000 to 75,000, or yeah, 15,000 to 7,500 years. And this created a, a kind of a genetic bottleneck. And the most popular theory for this happening is that it's because they moved into Beringia and got cut off from Asia, but couldn't move into the Americas because of ice. Uh, this is referred to as what's uh, the Beringia standstill. And eventually, this isolated group split into kind of a northern and southern branches, and that happened somewhere between... Um, 17,500 to 14,600 years ago. And I'm just going to 
re you know restate that just to make sure that I'm clear. So twenty thousand years ago, uh, the backbreeding between the founding population of Native Americans and the East Asian source completely stops. Then they're isolated somewhere between 15,000 to 7,500 years. Again, dating based just on DNA sources is a little tricky. Uh, but while they're isolated, they split up. So or somewhere during that isolation, um, you know, they, they break apart, you know, somewhere between three to 6,000 years. Um, the isolated population breaks into the northern and southern groups. So just think of it that way. <clears throat> now, it is around this time that the two groups moved into the Americas. How this was done is a matter of debate. There are those that say it was done via an overland route, while others say it was done through island hopping along the coasts of Alaska and Canada before getting south of the ice sheets. Um, for the longest time, this wasn't accepted because they didn't think boat use was, the kind of boats needed weren't being built, but I think there has been some archaeological evidence to show that, yes, we did actually have the kind of boats that would be needed to make that kind of journey. Excuse me. Now, this is about 4,000 years before the Clovis culture came about, or at least where they ended up, where, where they were being found. And it does line up with some of the pre-Clovis sites' uh, dates pretty well. Um, but I do need to mention that though these groups split in an earlier time, there is still a large shared heritage between them. Um, there is probably interbreeding between those groups once they get into the Americas as well. Uh, part of the reason we know this is that the there were the remains of a young boy, the only human remains, so far as I know, uh, that were found in the 1960s, or you know, found at the Clovis site. And as far as I'm aware, they're still the oldest uh, human remains found in the Americas. As far as I'm, that could be wrong, but. Regardless, so they did DNA testing on the remains, uh, and this was done in the 2000s, and they showed that the Clovis boy or Clovis child and his immediate family were related to around 80% of all American tribes. That's all of them. That's North, Central, and South American. So this means that when the Clovis break up, they spread kind of far and wide and interbreed with their neighbors. Uh, he also showed evidence of Siberian ancestry. So if you go far enough back, there is a shared ancestor between the modern-day Siberian uh, natives and the Native Americans. Now, it should be noted that none of this evidence disproves that there were earlier waves of Homo sapiens migrating into the Americas. And I think it is very possible that there was, though I'm very skeptical of dates that, you know, anything older than 25 to 30-ish thousand years old. Um, and I think some of the claims, you know, there have been some I've said, um, yeah, I, I mentioned some outliers. I think the Topper site, and then there was a site in Brazil, not the one I mentioned, but a separate one. They claimed that there's some as old as 50,000. 
I think that kind of is impossible. Not because I don't think we could have made the journey if the glacial conditions were right, but we just hadn't left Africa early enough to get there that quick. Um, yeah, I just, you know, we're not, we're not close to there to get through at that point. Um, that said, because of the current genetic evidence, it is clear that these potential earlier migrations, um, their descendants did not survive to pass their genes down to the modern day. Uh, they probably died out due to climate change and the megafauna die off. Um, the Americas were very volatile in terms of, you know, environment at this time, uh, possibly because of the big, um, pulse water that possibly called the Younger Dryas that big uh, melt off of the glacier in northern Canada that let all the water out into the Atlantic. I discussed it in our kind of Younger Dryas episode. That is certainly a possibility. Um, but yeah, so I think if there were people earlier than that, it's because, you know, you know they didn't really, they weren't able to adapt, basically. Um, of course, that's just based on everything we have discovered up to this point. Who knows, we could find remains or get data from, you know, another tribe that, you know, hasn't been tested yet. I know some tribes, at least in North America, are a little hesitant about doing DNA testing for, you know, fair reasons because of how they have been treated in the past by uh, a lot of the governments uh, that they deal with, but um, you never know. And you know, as we could find another site that will make things a lot clearer. It's impossible to say. Um, that being said, there is, of course, another possibility about these very old sites. Uh, and I'm going to bring up a very interesting kind of uh, article that I hadn't heard about until just about a month ago. Uh, so in 2017, a study published in Nature by Holan et al., said that they had discovered a 130,000-year-old a mastodon that had been killed and butchered by uh, cobblestones. Uh, that they had been, and that these cobbles had been worked by humans near modern-day San Diego, California. This, as you can imagine, caused a huge amount of controversy. Uh, Homo sapiens had only been outside of Africa prior to that time frame on possibly a small island in Greece in 2010 or 2010 years ago, 210,000 years ago, excuse me. And even that again is disputed. The next oldest example of Homo sapiens outside of Africa is at uh, 126,000 years ago in the Levant. So the timing is a bit of a stretch to say the least. Uh, now people attack the findings almost immediately, and they offer you know. Tons of you know explanations for their evidence. Uh, of course, the people that made the initial publication they fought back, and they you know they did the standard academic back and forth. But in 2020, earlier uh, or just a couple of years ago, uh, the Journal of Archaeological Science published a piece from Borders et al. that backed up some of the findings of the initial article. Uh, basically, they they did say that, hey, those bones had to get the, the basically the remains of the mammoth um, directly. They couldn't have just been, like, mixed together and got the remains that way. No, they had to have been, you know, 
pushed into or basically used to chop or butcher the the mammoth to get the DNA on them that way. Um, now, whether or not those choppers were actually used by humans is or Homo sapiens is, at least is another debate. <laughs> but they were able to verify the timing, I think, and kind of showed some some other things that they backed up those other people's findings. <laughs> So what does that mean if this is true? Uh, were, were the Americas home to another species of advanced hominid that uh, eventually established a thalassocracy from which they spread out and laid the seeds of modern civilization with psychic imprinting and communication on our ancient ancestors? Uh, no, uh, not at all. <laughs> Uh, but I think it's possible that a very small group of Neanderthals or Denisovans crossed over during a warmer period hunting for prey and eventually died out due to small numbers, making breeding impossible. And, or another shift in the climate, allowed them to go back the other way. Uh, this would explain the oldest sites and still allow for the multiple waves theory of migration into the Americas to hold true. Uh, now, I should be fair and point out that uh, there have never been any type of hominid remains in the Americas uh, at this point in time that we're talking about, and that Homo sapien remains have only ever been located in the Americas. Uh, there have been no other hominids found uh, in in the Americas uh, up to this point. So, I guess, technically speaking... Um, when it comes to evidence, my theory is just as well backed by the science as the uh, super advanced psychic uh, Americans uh, that you might see in some uh, types of uh, ancient uh, civilization, lost civilization type theories. Um, but I kind of bring all this up to say that, you know, this is not an exact science, what we've been talking about up to this point. And it's still not going to be the exact science in the next couple of, uh, I guess, season or two going forward. Um, so just try to keep an open mind when you hear things like this. And just know that work is still being done. Uh, much like civilization, it is not always a straightforward path. Sometimes there are regressions. Sometimes there are digressions. And sometimes, you know, there are just mistakes. And sometimes you just have to keep uh, working with what you can find. Um, but that being said, I do think the Americas, you know, have a lot of work still to be done. I know I've talked about how there were there was some uh, Chinese scientist who had made a very valid point that East Asia has not had as much research done as it deserved, and I think that's true of the Americas as well. I think though, I within the next fifteen to twenty years, we might know a lot more about this than we do now. So I look forward to finding out about all that. And I do plan, again, to kind of go back and maybe cover big discoveries uh, if they should arise. Um, the reason I kind of did that in the historiography section uh, in this episode is that, again, the only definitive culture that we have is the Clovis culture at this point in time in the Americas. Um, now, again... I feel like there are plenty of the sites that I mentioned um, that are valid, that they are here at the same time as Clovis. 
uh, some of them would have been existing around the same time. So they would be they would be fair game for this episode. Um, but I think it's kind of hard to talk about them in detail because a lot of their finds of theirs is not that distinct. It's fairly common and similar to Mesolithic. Um, the, the rest of the Mesolithic toolkit, there's nothing that really stands out. I think the Clovis, they also kind of, they have some similarities to some other cultures, but that's not to say they're not important. That's not to say none of these sites are unimportant. But they're all fairly small, and I think what this tells us is that at this point, they're very, they're very probably sites for close family or kin. Um, and there, there's several of them, again, uh, in the Americas, I think over 20, as far as I know. So they're very widespread. Um, they cover, you know, pretty much the entirety of the Homo sapien population, populating of uh, the Americas. Um, but we will return to this area and we will go into more detail on the Folsom culture, which is kind of like the Ur culture of, um, of North America for Native Americans. Um, but there are others, so I look forward to kind of diving into what makes them unique kind of in our next section. Um, but yeah, if I hadn't discussed that, you know, the speculation and the historiography, um, this episode would have been very short indeed. And I do kind of want to give you guys kind of a meaty episode, which this thankfully turned out. It's almost, it's almost 40 minutes just on its own. Um, so... Uh, yeah, I think this is a good stopping point for this episode. I hope you've enjoyed our talk about the Americas, and indeed, our talk about all of the 10,000 BC time frame. Now, for kind of future stuff. Um, it is, as I record this, it is the 10th of September. Um, I will be recording another episode next week for sure. I'm kind of going to go into some domestication theories and just kind of discussions on that and how that works and what we know about it um, because this is kind of the time frame where humans have begun to experiment with that or at least they're about to and by the time we get to our next season or section uh, it will have definitely been happening for at least a thousand years or so um, and that, that's a lot of time to do domestication work so um, I think after that, I am I am traveling the 23rd uh, through the 30th. So probably I will try and do at least one kind of supplemental episode. Maybe have one rec you know recorded ahead of time. Um, but I don't think I could do two. I might. I'll try my best, but I can't make any promises. So look forward to two episodes um, while I'm traveling. And then I hope to be back. Well, I will have an episode on that uh, that um, Monday. I think the third. I should be able to do that with no issue. Um, but October, as I said before, is going to be kind of a... Um, it's going to be a little, not a break, because I'll still be doing episodes, but I'm going to be discussing um, kind of um, 
more fantasy and just in general um, uh, artistic, I guess, uh, exploration of like um, fantasy worlds, uh, possibly sci-fi. I, I haven't kind of gotten everything planned out. I That's why I was asking people for feedback on specific things. I think I've got a few. Uh, but that's going to be most of October, just so I can uh, work on the the next section, as it were, and I can complete my research and start doing my scripts for those. Uh, so October, it's not going to be no episodes, but they'll be um, a little bit less serious, uh, unrealistic, as it were, which I think is a valid thing to do for Halloween. But um, I hope you'll agree. I hope you'll listen regardless. But um, if not, uh, again, next week's will be a normal episode, and I hope... Um, when we get back to the historical stuff, if you're not listening to the more fantasy side of things, uh, you'll join me when we get back to the 8000 BC time frame. But again, I would like to thank you all for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode, and I hope you'll continue to listen and follow along with me. Uh, thank you, and have a good rest of your day. Goodbye.